G'day everyone, Kate from the Narrate team here. This July we've been exploring the topic of anxiety and the hope that Jesus offers. And there's a definite connection between our choice of words and anxiety. And this past Sunday, Adam expounded on that connection. Uh, speaking of English language, see if you can finish this one. Uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Uh, it was kind of weak. Which we've all long ago concluded is a bunch of bull, right? Like that collectively, though we were kind of raised on that phrase, we, we now acknowledge that, that words, far from being uh, com- completely uh, irrelevant, are among the most powerful things in all the planet. That, that many of our lives, the jobs we hold and the person we see in the mirror and the strengths we understand ourselves to have, so many of those things are shaped by the use of words in our own uh, lives. Uh, this last week, I had the chance to spend a few days at a regional baseball tournament. We had a nines and a tens team there, and I got to go to the coaches' meeting because I help out with the nines team. And so in this room full of a bunch of guys who just won their state championship, so they tend to take their sport a little bit serious, even though it's nine-year-old and 10-year-old baseball. So there's 30-some people in the top floor of this clubhouse, and it's 100 degrees outside. We're all hungry and been standing around forever, and there was, there was a bit of an edge to the air. And this, this guy who had all the makings of a guy who's been there, done that, don't try it with me, this probably 70-something guy who was super likable and super crusty, uh, he, he started this meeting and he said, uh, we understand that a couple of you got kicked out of your state tournament. And he just immediately like Superman eyes on these two coaches in the middle of the room. He said, we want you to know, we know who you are and we're watching you. <laughs> I was just like, woo, here we go. But what do you suppose gets a coach kicked out of a baseball game? His, his words. Yeah, exactly. Little did I know how capable I was of almost becoming that guy. So the ball was foul, by the way. Uh, it was clearly still on the chalk line when the coach in the championship game screamed, let it go foul, let it go foul. And the third baseman on that command reached down and picked the ball up off the chalk line. It was foul and it was my son, or it was fair. That was really what it was. Uh, and it was my son at the plate. That didn't help anything. <laughs> so I, after it was all over and we had our conversation at the plate, um, which it was, a, it was a decent conversation that involved appealing it and then that was bull, something like that. Uh, I went back to my little corner, embarrassed and dejected. And uh, this guy who is this great guy, he's a wrestling and football coach. So he's got ilk that I could only dream of having. He, he came up behind me and he's like, dude, I like the fire coming out of number 22, which I then realized was the number on my back. <laughs> and I said, oh no, did I become that guy? And he said, just for a second, but you turned it off. <laughs> So there's these things called words, and, and they are incredibly powerful. Tom Rath, who is one of my favorite guys to read, I highly recommend everything he's written, everything you can find. He is highly credited for a lot of the work in Gallup's Strength Finder 2.0, a very popular strength assessment. He's written a number of books. All of them are fantastic. One of the things I love about Tom Rath is that his books are very, very researched, filled with footnotes to all kinds of medical journals and different studies. They're nothing like a sermon at Narrate where it's a guy with an idea and a, a week worth of trying it, and then I'm like, here we go, let's do this. They're very, very researched. One of his more recent book is a book called Fully Charged, and in it he asks the question, what causes content people to be content? Or you might use the word happy. I think it's fraught with difficulty. I like to avoid it. Fulfilled, whatever you want to call it. But he asks this question, like, why are fulfilled people fulfilled? 
And he identified a few things. We've talked about this a couple of months ago. The first thing that I love about the book and part of why I leaned into it, because we're all biased towards uh, having our opinions reaffirmed to us. And the one that this reaffirms is he says uh, th- that the research would say that the secret, if there is one, isn't found in something you do weekly or monthly or yearly, but that highly uh, contented <clears throat> people. Is there something I need to adjust here, Jamie, with that weirdness? Uh, what he says is that highly content people, they do certain things every day. And the one we talked about a couple months ago was that what the research would say is that highly content people, they identified other-centered purpose within individual days and that that's, there's a strong correlation between an other-centered life. And this isn't like Christian research. This is just research, you know, whatever. I think all of it's true. is all of it's Jesus, whatever. But it's just research. He doesn't have that, that kind of bias. He's not trying to reaffirm the Bible. But he just goes, hey, listen, if you live an other-centered life, that contributes to your happiness, especially if you can figure out ways to do that every day. The other thing he notes is the second thing is that highly contented people, he said, says, have a high, they, they have a lot of positive interactions with other people. And the part that's incredibly challenging to me about his research is he says, first of all, uh, intensity isn't as, value as, as valuable as volume. In other words, and this is where we could just park here as parents and spouses and leaders and friends and neighbors. In other words, he, he said, the person doesn't need like two minutes of really strong positive reinforcement. They don't need a Corvette. They don't need a dozen roses. might not hurt. What they need is to be inundated 10, 12, 15 times a day is what the research says. People who are fully charged have had this high volume of very quick hitting positive interactions. Now, the other thing that he says that really caught my attention, uh, part of what to me makes him uh, so credible, is he allows that people who are 100% positive with their words are equally as annoying, discredited, and otherwise just completely ignored as are people who are 100% Negative. So positive, negative. I forget which one I said first, four hours of sleep last night. Uh, He he says both are discredited. So the goal, he says, and this you've probably learned in management classes or leadership or even on a team, the goal is 80%. And we've all heard that. We're one step ahead of the boss who's like, okay, here's a positive and a positive and a positive. You're like, just get to the negative. Like, I get the whole encouragement sandwich, positive, positive, negative, positive, positive. Like, just cut to it, right? What he says is there's actually scientific backing to this idea that that the ideal number is right at 80%. That highly charged people, 80% of their interactions are full of encouragement, uh, they're full of uh, positive feedback, they're full of reinforcement, and then there's a science to it. And this is is where I love following Jesus, because it's not that the Bible and science are at odds, it's that they're complementing one another, because the text has been saying this for couple thousand years at minimum, and that's just speaking to the New Testament part. But what he says is scientifically, hormonally, what they're now starting to understand is that when you get negative feedback, especially if it's unexpected, you're feeling confronted and you weren't looking for it, you're feeling cornered, or you're just generally a male, like... If you find yourself in that situation and you get that negative feedback, that causes the hormonal system in your body or the system in your body to produce uh, the, the hormone cortisol, which is the heart attack hormone. It's the like, you don't want the hormone. It, it's, it, it's the bad hormone. And part of what they're understanding cortisol does is cortisol shuts down the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is why uh, if you're feeling confronted, there's no problem solving. There's, a, like, there's no like, hey, this could be a fun challenge. There's no like, let's get creative. There's just like, who are they and who do I kill? Because the only part of your brain that's working in those instances is the fight or flight part of your brain. 
But conversely, he says, when you get positive reinforcement, positive words, encouragement, like, like healthy stuff coming your way, it causes your body to produce serotonin. Serotonin, in the absence of it, is what leads to depression. It's what makes pharmaceutical companies gazillionaires. It's, 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 it's the big thing right now. And what he's saying is that when you get positive reinforcement, your hormonal system produces serotonin, which activates the prefrontal cortex, which is why sometimes you go like, oh, that's a fun challenge. Let's work on this. Let's think about this. Let's get creative. And all of a sudden, you're just leaning into it. But here's the catch. Here's the scientific piece of this whole 80% thing. Your body, they're starting to understand, metabolizes serotonin four times faster than cortisol. Which means we can give you equal number of negative and positive feedback. And long after your body has burned through the positive, the negative's still there. It's still driving the emotional engine of your mind and heart and life. Therefore, scientifically what they're now saying is that there needs to be an 80% ratio just to break even in a marriage, just to break even in a relationship, just to break even in the culture of an office. Crazy, isn't it? Words, these incredibly powerful things. And in fact, James, which some call the two-by-four of the Bible, it's one of the more accessible, more blunt uh, books in the Bible. And if you've been thinking, like, I really kind of want to start doing this chair time thing, but I don't know where to start, just start in James and circle through it until Thanksgiving and, and then move on. Listen to what James says. When he put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Words, in other words, are these incredibly dynamic things. Now, that's all fair and good, and we've talked a lot about about that. The question is, what in the world does that have to do with anxiety, right? I was, I was duped. I thought we were still in the uh, Hello, My Name is Anxiety series, and we are. Here's the question that I want to ask. It's, it's up there. Here's the thing that's been rolling through my head, and this morning is much more in the, like, here's something I'm experimenting with and some observations I'm making, and I don't have a medical journey, journal to cite just yet, but here, here, here's what I've been wrestling with. What is the connection between my words, your words, and my emotional experience and your emotional experience? I mean the literal words stated. What's the connections? How how do the words I say affect me? And how do the words I say affect others? And I'm not just talking like whether or not they want to keep their job or whether or not they want to climb that mountain. I mean in their experience of anxiety, fear, dread, worry. How do the words that I say affect others? How do the words that others say affect me? What, What is the overall effect of what I'm going to call uncreative or lackey language. You know, because we go on vacation, we spend $5,000 over a week, we get back, and our friend says, how was it? And the first thing we do is talk about the dinner on Tuesday night and how, bar- how terrible it was. I guess I want to know, what impact does that have on, on this, what I'm going to call systemic experience of anxiety? Or maybe we could ask it this way. Have you ever met a grateful, anxious person? This is part of the thing that I've been wrestling with. Adam, is it even emotionally, physiologically, scientifically possible to be both full of dread, worry, and anxiety and gratitude simultaneously in the moment? What, what happens? 
when even for just a lack of creativity or effort, we start our conversations with how bad the weather is or how big of a jerk our neighbor is, when we're surrounded by all these other options. Now, if I could get didactic and scientific for just a moment, and then you can all tell me to never do that again. But here's part of what's caused me to uh, think through this. So let's go. I bounced this off one mathematician friend, and I didn't actually read the reply to see whether or not it was accurate because I was afraid of the answer. (laughs) That's literal, actually. Um, I was also headed out the door. So here's what we've been saying so far, is that toxic thoughts equal anxiety, right? Like that's been the thesis thus far. far. That's what Dr. Karen Leaf has been helping us. That's what neuroplasticity says. That's what the text says over and over and over again. If you're thinking toxic thoughts, you're going to have anxiety. That's not to deny that there's physiological things. That's just to say that whatever part of the equation there is, your thinking mechanism contributes to your emotional reality. So T equals A. Now listen to what Jesus says. And some of you are like, I don't even follow Jesus. Uh, But I think even nonetheless, you're going to go like, well, duh. Listen, listen to this in, in, in Luke 6. Luke records Jesus uh, saying this. If I can find Luke 6. Wow. Am I losing my mind? Oh, here we go. Uh, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings the evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And we all kind of go like, yeah, yeah. Angry boss equals angry workplace. Like, Dad without sleep, I mean, we get this, right? Which leads to this formula. Like, so what Jesus is saying is that toxic thoughts, go ahead, next slide, equals toxic words. So here's my unscientific scientific argument. If T equals A and T equals W, then, then what, I almost bought you a root beer this morning. Then what is the relationship between A and W? Right? Like, it seems a fair question, doesn't it? If what we're saying is that toxic thoughts lead to anxiety and what we're also kind of life would say and Jesus affirmed is that toxic thought leads to toxic words, then what is the relationship between the words that I say and my emotional state? Now, here's what brought me to this place. And I say this with a lot of respect and I haven't totally unpacked it with any professionals yet. But when I went some friends gifted me with this experience. I've talked about it often, this experience in California uh, that I call psychotherapy, which probably isn't totally respectful to the experience because there's some of the greatest thinkers and psychologists and leaders. The problem is it's actually called ultimate leadership, which is like, how, how do you answer that question? Like, hey, so what'd you do last week? I went to this thing called ultimate leadership. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lose-lose scenario. So that, I just kind of make fun of it. The, the, the takeaway that I took from that with regard to my anxiety was to talk about it, to put it to words. In fact, one of the challenges was, Adam, you need to identify some people in your life, which I only kind of ever did, uh, that, that you can call in the midst of an experience of anxiety and start putting words to your feelings. Now, parenthetically, I am grateful for that experience to the degree that it helped me develop emotional intelligence. Because that was a season, we did a whole series last summer called Help I Feel, where we just talked about the incredibly vital nature of feelings and understanding what we're feeling so that our feelings don't sabotage our behavior because we want our values to drive our behavior, not our feelings. Never mind that the score is three to three and we really need to win this game. But what we want is our values, not our feelings to drive uh, the whole deal. Grateful for that. But here's what happened to me is I started to apply it. And, and as I was experiencing anxiety, and I'm grateful for the fact that now I understand, like, hey, I'm feeling this way, not because I had a bad hot dog, but because this is anxiety, and not because this thing's going on or that thing's going on. The, the reason I can explain uh, my sweating and, and the way my stomach feels and the fact that I would really like to find a bathroom, that's all anxiety. It's nothing else. But as I started to put words to it, my own experience of that praxis 
of putting words to my anxiety, was the, the spiral only tightened. It only got worse and worse and worse and unraveled more and more and more. And that, in fact, is when I bumped into neuroplasticity, Dr. Carolyn Leaf, all of these ideas, which in fact would say, here's an alternative. When you identify said toxic thought, you can unpack it. You can give it a life of its own. You can speak to it. You can give it words. You, you can talk about it. But there's an alternative, and neuroplasticity would very much support this idea. The alternative would be, no, 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 you, you answer that toxic thought. You deal with it, not by giving it a vocabulary, but by, by having its ancillary, is that the word? By, 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 by juxtaposing it with a more healthy alternative? And thus, you choose not to direct your thought down that path, but actually 180 degrees opposite that path, which is what caused me, I, I can tell I'm losing you. So, so here we go. What caused me to start thinking, wait a minute, maybe the text is suggesting this. Maybe this is the life Jesus has been pointing us to from, from day one. L listen to First Thessalonians, and this will get us into why we've talked about so many of these verses throughout this series. L listen to what First Thessalonians says for some reason, it feels more validating if I don't read it from that screen above your head, but from my Bible. I don't know. There's something about it that makes me feel more spiritual. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here's a question. What if gratitude is hard work? Listen, I'm not trying to discredit, discount the physiological, like, DNA stuff with anxiety. What if part of the systemic nature of this experience within our culture, we used to call it worry, now we call it anxiety. What if it's because we don't want to do the hard work of gratitude? Listen, some, some of you are in a situation where this is a lot harder work than it is for me right now. I want to fully allow for that. But what if hitting said intersection and choosing to identify what we can be thankful for is hard work but also healthy. I watched it play this self out in a trivial nine-year-old baseball tournament yesterday, if you'll just humor me for a second. So our, our 9U team, second place at regionals, first time a team has been to the regionals championship game from Helena since 1989. It was a very exciting day that landed me at my curb at 11.30 last night. Semi-final game. Uh, three to three, I think after the third inning. At the end of six, regulation, three to three. At the end of seven, extra innings, three to three. Top of the eighth, the other team, West Lynn, uh, West Lynn scored two runs to, to take a 5-3 lead. Going into the bottom of the eighth, our guys rallied, scored three runs for a walk-off win, earning their way into the championship game. It, it was completely insane. We had a half an hour to recover from that game to the championship against the hometown Meridian team, which, you know, umpires and hometowns and all that stuff, whatever. So, so our, our guys are dog-tired at the start of the game. It's 12 to 3 after three innings, going into the, or 12 to 3 going into the bottom of the fourth. Or in the bottom of the fourth, it was 12 to 3, one out, guys on second and third. If they score another run, they're 10-run. Game over. We just got our butts kicked in the championship game. Uh, our coaches kind of go like, hey, we should walk this guy. At least then we get a force. We bring the infield in. Uh, next guy tries to steal home on a pass ball. Our, our guys, two of our better players, throw him out at the plate, two outs. Next pitch, strike out the guy, three outs. We go into the top of the fifth, down 12 to three, our kids are a disaster. I mean, it's nine-year-olds. They're crying. I mean, it's like a morgue in the dugout. 
And, and we're going, guys, you scored 18 runs with no out, with two outs, nobody on in the course of the tournament up until this point. Like, you can do this. We don't believe it, but we're telling them that. <laughs> <laughs> they scored 12 runs in the top of the fifth to take a 15-13 lead. It was completely insane. It was like a high school football game. Crowd is this hilarious stuff. And I turned to one of the 10U coaches who, who were out of the tournament ready, and he's got this great mind and a really good eye for baseball. And he's kind of in, in my ear the whole time, like he's in my ear, and then I'm parroting it to the head coach, and collectively I'm looking intelligent. But I'm really not. I'm just parroting information. And I said, wow, like we might win this thing. At one point it looked like we would. We had two outs in the bottom of the fifth. Uh, we were about to get out of the game, a couple errors. Anyway, and he, he said, doesn't matter. You've won this game at this point, whether you win it or not. And a day later, we, we ended up losing 17-15, uh, kind of unraveled and bothered. And, and today I'm like, he's right. Now, I, I know that's baseball. That's not cancer. That's not divorce. That's not financial turmoil. What if Paul knew what he was talking about? That the real hard work of life is to fold back some layers and figure out what within this can I be grateful for? And what if the emotional experience of anxiety changes when we do? Listen to what he says in Philippians. I'm getting a little uh, long-winded. We're going to have to hit the accelerator. Listen to this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, we've already allowed like 100% a positive, annoying, discredited, don't come to me. But he's also going like, hey, it's the same deal, isn't it? Do the hard work. Do the hard work. Or, or what, what effect do your words have on others? Listen to Paul in Ephesians. This one, as a parent, makes me want to uh, like pass the baton. Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. What if Paul understood that your words, they don't just affect careers and marriages. They affect emotional states of others, and you better use them like an expert surgeon. And part of what brought all this to, to a head to me was a conversation I was having with a friend who we have mutual respect for a particular therapist, and he was sharing with me an interaction that he had, and of course, um, fully protected no one's supposed to know about it kind of thing. I, I don't know. But he said he'd asked this, this, this therapist, so why prison? Like what, what happens that people end up there? Now, asterisk, there, there's lots of dynamics. I think we all get that. But the succinct nature of his, her words, I won't soon forget. She said, when the internal voice goes toxic, it gets that bad that fast. What if she's right? What if Paul's right? What if the secret, and this is something you've heard a million times, really isn't circumstances, but the heart? What, what, what if we're being brought to our knees collectively and culturally by anxiety because gratitude is hard work and we prefer not to do it? So that leads me to these couple questions. First of all, uh, how would addressing uncreative complaining change your experience of anxiety? Could we just agree that starting the conversation with how bad the weather is, is it's uncreative. It's easy. It's low-hanging fruit. But could it be that it's not innocuous? 
that it does have impact? Or second this, and it's really the same thing, how would practicing gratitude rather than complaining change your experience with anxiety? What if part of the answer to a toxic thought is identifying the corollary, the, the thing inside of it that we can begin to be thankful for? You know, in just a minute, we're going to celebrate communion uh, because Jesus, in, in his final days, in that season on the planet, in that form, too much theology, I'm pausing myself with every word. Uh, he took some bread and he said, hey guys, when you gather, you should, you should eat this bread and you should use this as, as a reminder of my body broken for you. And he took some wine. Welch's hadn't been born yet. And he said, hey, and, 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 and when you have this meal, drink this wine as a reminder of my blood poured out for you. And I wonder... If part of why communion, the Eucharist, Lord's Tabor, whatever it is you've called it in your experience of church up until this point, I wonder if why it was such a vital part of the Christian experience for Jesus is because he understood personally and as the creator that gratitude would be hard work. And at the very least, we could be grateful for a God who was relentless in his pursuit, that death doesn't have the final word, but that he does. Just a minute, I'm going to pray, and the band's going to be up here. We'll have elements over here and over here. If you've never taken communion with us before, we'll go through two songs. Uh, we have gluten-free bread and bread chock full of gluten, and we have wine, and we have grape juice, and the only thing we'd ask is that you don't tip and sip because we're germaphobes, and we don't like that. And if you could keep your thumbnail out, that would also, I'm just kidding, <laughs> would also be fantastic. I'm going to pray. God... Lord, it's, it's almost ironically uncreative to even talk about gratitude, but as we consider anxiety and our emotional states and the words that we use and how they shape our emotional reality, God, I, I pray that you would prompt conversation within relationship because we know that's really the only thing that changes us. That we would give consideration to this both in our conversations with you and our conversations with those uh, that we love that you'd help us uh, find the difference between guilt and conviction. Because I'm guessing nobody here is feeling like they've nailed this one, but they're thinking of adult children and former employees and all the ways we've failed perhaps at times in our words. God, would you help us seize the discipline of confession and at the same time know that you're a God of, of redemption and change. Would you help us find that path of, of gratitude? Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.